Hello, my name is Chris Gordon and I'm the Events Manager at Readings and today I'm in the recording studio with three brilliant women, writers, who have come to visit us here in Melbourne from the Perth Writers' Festival. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is to introduce yourself, introduce your book, we'll start from you, we'll start over there with you, then we'll work our way around and then I want to get some tales of you three on the road. So, Hello, um, I'm Helen Ellis, and I am the author of the short story collection, American Housewife. Fantastic. And I'm Fiona McFarlane, and I am the author of the story collection, The High Places. I'm Virginia Reeves. I'm the author of my debut novel, Work Like Any Other. Fantastic. And now what I'm hoping is that you will all recognize when you're listening everyone else's voice. So now I won't have to keep using your names. But tell me how you three met. Fiona, perhaps you start. How did you meet these two American writers? These two Americans, I know. How did I cross to the dark side with these Americans? Well, I wasn't going to say that. (laughs) Well, um, one of the most unlikely things to happen in my life was that I lived in Texas for a little while, and it's still surprising to me. And when I was there, I was a student at the Missioner Center for Writers, which is this wonderful satellite writing program from the University of Texas at Austin. Fantastic. And um, one of my, I mean, I was in this wonderful class full of amazing human beings and writers. And one of those was Virginia Reeves, who is sitting on my left here. um, And we became very dear friends. Virginia, was Fiona the only Australian in this Texas classroom? She was. Yeah. Yeah. The one and only yeah. Australian foreigner. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The only, <laughs> the only foreigner. foreigner. One of my favorite moments was in a class with um, the poet Bridget Kelly. Yeah. Bridget McGean Kelly. And we were reading this Russell Hoban novel, Ridley Walker, Ooh. which is all written in this really peculiar dialect that's in possible to understand for the first 10 to 20 pages and then you kind of get in the rhythm in it of it and you understand it and you're like okay I think I can hear this in my head and understand what's happening but Bridget loved the sound of that book in Fiona's accent like he was speaking this sort of apocalyptic <laughs> British English but actually it was basically British. Australian and so I was like I have no trouble with this at all but there was a class where essentially I, I feel I mean I'm in my memory, we, we essentially were sitting in a room for like seven hours while Fiona read. <laughs> I was like, can, aloud. I, can I stop now? And she'd go, no, read on. <laughs> and we just keep, just keep reading. So the three of you met at the Perth Writers' Festival? We met at a bar. Oh, I expect nothing. <laughs> yes, <we did. laughs> so how did, how did that come about? How did you, how did you meet at this bar? At the Writers' Festival, it was, it was after a long, hot day of talking to your fans, a, of no, signing it was, cues. It was after a long flight. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. all had flown uh, flown into the hotel, and yeah. our wrangler yeah. uh, wrangled us all into the bar. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> and when you're at something like a Writers' Festival, is that the most precious of moments? When you're in the bar with other authors... 
is that where you in some ways get the most inspiration and the most support? I feel like the entire Australian experience for me has been like summer camp. I got off the plane, I got onto a bus, I made immediate friends. Those friends introduced me to other friends, yeah. except that, you know, we were there were outside activities, <laughs> there was crafting. Did and, you get a timetable? Um, not so much. Yeah. You know, there was some free time. Yeah. Uh, and there was some drinking. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So, yeah, but if you're, is it the meeting of authors or is it the meeting of your readers that you think that writers' festivals and are terrific? What, what, what is it that makes a writers' festival a good thing to travel halfway across the world to attend? Well, I, this is my first writers' festival yeah. as a writer on the yeah. other side of it. So I've been to book festivals as a reader yeah. and, um, and just full disclosure, I mean, the thing that makes any of the writers festivals worth it here is that I got to travel across the world and spend three weeks with my dear friend Fiona. <laughs> yeah, that's very nice. So, um, so I would say the the writers are are a huge part of it. Writing yeah. is a really um, is a really solitary act, and that's very important. I'm I'm missing my solitude a little bit at mm. this moment. Yeah. I I appreciate it. I need it. I need that alone time. But it also is really wonderful to get around other people who have an endeavored to do this same peculiar isolating thing it is peculiar mm-hmm. writing can i say it is there you are in a room with your imagination writing day in day out i don't know i'm making this up i'm assuming that you have some sort of timetable i'm assuming that you are in your own study that you may or may not have a window that you decide over a period of time that you are going to write a book. (laughs) And then, after all of that time by yourself, we expect you, the reading public, to come out and strut your stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, who does? I like strutting my stuff. Yeah, you have no problem. Do you have sort of a... (laughs) I can see that you have no problem strutting your stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I will shimmy right here. So how how do you find it sitting in the room writing the book? I well, I like to be I like to be alone. Usually, yeah. I'm flanked by two cats. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah, but I also like coming out and um, mixing it up. Mixing it up. Mm. Do you write every single day when you're back home? No, um, I, I started out doing that, and it worked for me. Uh, I had a book come out 15 years ago. That's right. And then it did not work for me uh, after I wrote three other books that were never published. I did read about yeah. this, that it's sitting nicely in, in a drawer somewhere. Yeah, and uh, and I quit for quite some time. So when I started writing this, I wrote it in a very different manner. Um, you know, some of the stories, the teeny tiny stories, were start, started out as tweets. Um, and I basically wrote this book between poker tournaments. Um, just two weeks so here, two weeks there. to our <laughs> listeners. Helen. Play poker. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, life advice. Yes. <laughs> yes. Helen. <laughs> Helen is a professional poker player as I'm, well. I'm a very as competent being a professional author. I'm a competent, respected amateur, I would say. <laughs> there's a difference. Uh, with, yes, there's a, like a digit a extra digit. digit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fiona, what about for you when you're writing in Sydney, overlooking the harbour? Amongst the treetops, is there a timetable that you follow? In Sydney, overlooking the rooftops of Marrickville. You yeah, mean? Right. 
Um, you know, I, I don't do sort of timetables in terms of, you know, I must start writing at this time and finish at this time. I give myself a daily word count. It's a little different mm-hmm. for a novel and short stories. Yeah. So for the novel, certainly, because it's just, I mean, it's just this monumental sort of thing that you have to keep chipping away at. And initially I tried to write a thousand words a day and that led me into a sort of shame spiral mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I read um, Shirley Hazard's wonderful book, Green on Capri, about Graham Greene. And his mm. writing routine was that he would write 350 words a day, no matter what. And mm. I thought, I'm going to try this. 350 words is basically a page. It's mm-hmm. much easier to do. And so you sit down at it less terrified, I think. And then once you've actually started writing, usually I write more. But there are definitely days where I'm on 3.49 and I'm sort of squeezing <laughs> the last word out. So that with the novel, that's what was happening there. But the stories in, in The High Places, are, you know, they were written over a period of t- about 10 years. And some of them I, I wrote before the novel. Uh, and then a lot of them I wrote at the same time. And they were sort of like this sneaky affair that I was having away from the novel. That so. is such a delicious description <laughs> of writing. I love that. That's, that's how many of these stories felt to me. Yeah. And, you know, and some of them I've written after I, f- I finished after. But there's, there's more of a sense there that you can sort of have this more intense experience of writing them and, you know, they could occupy you know, hours and hours at a time over a period of a week or something. And often then I'll leave them for three years and then come back and make, and they'll become really different. Mm. But there's still less that sense that you have to, so you're building an edifice and more the sense that you're playing around. Fantastic. Yeah. Virginia? What's the question? Mm-mm. How do you write? <laughs> How do you write? Are you, are you sort of... I was just listening. I know. Um, we were... <laughs> just going with Fiona and... Um, I write, let's see, how do I write? I I think um, I'm I'm pretty strict with the time. Do you have I, a word count? I I have a word count and I stole Fiona's 350 for a while. I'm back to the thousand. You're um, so much more productive than I am, <laughs> just in general, so that makes sense. So I'm trying to do a thousand a day, but I don't write every day. So I don't, so if it's a writing day, I expect to write a thousand words. And you don't write every day because you do other things? Yes. Do you have another life um, outside your life as an author? Well, up until just this past January, actually, I have been teaching full-time yeah. as well. So figuring out those gaps, and I think why it was so important to have very specific designated times for writing was so that I didn't lose it. I knew clearly that if I didn't make sure I kept those two hours or those four hours here. It was like your gym membership. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely, because I wouldn't. There wasn't another chance. So, yeah. um, so I was very. I'm. I'm very devoted to the pockets of writing, and I think I'm not teaching now. But now there's this other side of writing that feels that it's kind of taken that teaching role. I love teaching, and it's the kind. It it satisfies the social element. We already talked about how isolating writing can be, and so I love going and working with young people and talking about books and words, and it's really invigorating and inspiring. But now on this other end of publication, having the book out, the social side is taken up with lovely conversations like this. Mm-hmm. And um, and so there's there's working that into it too, how to balance the promotion and still oh. reserve time for the creative work. I think it must be very difficult. That's what I think. I think full credit to all three of you for actually even making it here <laughs> to Carlton. I think it's incredible. <laughs> what I might do is get you, Fiona, to to read a little bit from your book 
And then we can talk about some of the themes that I think that come up in some of your short stories that apply to all three books that we'll be talking about today. So can I start with you? Is that all right? Yeah, of course. I'll just read about a page from a short story called Man and Bird. In the hour of his humiliation, Reverend Adams still wore his hat, a black bowler that sat upright on his narrow head like a fortified town on a hilltop. (laughs) His clerical shirt was also black, and his single-breasted jacket, all three buttons firmly fastened, and his trousers and shoes, but all in slightly different shades, which gave him a regrettably scruffy look, simultaneously prismatic and funereal. The parish had great hopes for him at first. He'd had excellent theological training, came with good references, and was, moreover, unmarried, which stirred the ashes of many a virgin breast. And so, in the beginning, when he entered his new congregation, it was as a bridegroom into a rose garden. His appearance was promising. The slope of his nose, echoed in the angle of his chin, gave an impression of profound endurance. There was a suggestion of sculpture in the marble-like whiteness of his skin. Yes, he was prim and pallid, in excellent health, with well-made ears, and in his battered blacks he presented a respectable, even slightly romantic figure. Also, he was kindly. He walked with an incongruous maritime swell that might, in another man, have passed for a swagger, and was careful in the maintenance of a small yellow car that he rarely drove faster than 70 kilometres an hour. He spoke in long, dignified sentences, rich in clauses, reminiscent of a veteran's parade on a memorial holiday, and as he delivered his sermons, he had a tendency to rise to the tip of his toes, so that finally he appeared to be levitating behind the pulpit. This was disconcerting, but forgivable. He also caused a minor stir early on when he removed two ancient trees from the churchyard because, he said, they interfered with the grass. <laughs> what worried people most of all was his parrot. Ooh. It's just such a fantastic short story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, listeners, you will have to go out and purchase the high places to find out what happens to the parrot and the (laughs) (laughs) But I'm interested that you called your book The High Places and I'm interested about that whole notion of the high places in some way representing some type of religion or ethical kind of contribution to, to humanity. Is that what you set out to do with your collection or in the end... Did it just seem to make the most sense? Well, it's the name of one of the stories, which is um, the story is about a farmer in the middle of a drought who yeah. keeps experiencing these miracles, what his son believes are miracles, and he's not sure what to, to make of them. And, you know, they travel to this high place to make a sacrifice. Um, and the parrot? Yeah. No. no, no, this is a different story. story. Oh, it, is, it is sheep. It is sheep. Oh, I can think There's about a lot it as of the sheep parent in this now. one. Yeah. It's more. Uh, it, it's quite biblical, you know. I mean, it's, that's what. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's it's a very deliberately biblical story, and so you know, the high places is a biblical term. Yeah. But for me, and obviously, I'm really interested in belief. It, it certainly comes up. I think you know, faith fascinates me as sort of a human condition, I suppose, for all kinds of reasons. But I think in the end, the high places just made. Well, it made a literal kind of sense in that there's a lot of high places in the book. You know, there's this kid who climbs into an enormous shopping mall Christmas tree, for example. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Down it goes. Down it goes. Um, You know, there's just sort of literally there's that. But I think, too, that it's really about um, it's about perspective and having a new perspective on something. And, um, you know, the this looking looking down at things from a high place is sort of this traditional authorial position, also kind of godlike. But one of the things I've loved most was when I told one of my friends that 
she asked what the title would be and I said The High Places and she said, I love that because it makes me think right away of The Low Places. And that's oh, perfect. Oh. I love that what too. What is wrong with me? I never <laughs> thought of that. Neither did I, neither did I. Don't worry. <laughs> but, but I love that, you know, that it really, it's about scale and it's about perspective and it's about sort of looking at things in a new way. So that's, that's what I love about it. Because, Virginia, I think that's really interesting what Fiona was saying because in some ways your book, your novel, does the same sort of thing. Here we are talking about what happens when there's a huge change, how some people perceive it and how some people don't. Religion is taken into some sort of context. People have different beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. We we see in, in my novel we're in the 20s and 30s in Alabama and um, it's it's at the start of electricity for many rural country farms and and it's really and and cities are getting electrified and so electricity in and of itself becomes takes on kind of a mythic power mm. well not even mythical in some ways i mean it becomes the making or the unmaking of of many people absolutely absolutely and it's reference that it's it my main character roscoe it is it is a religion to him and That's it right. is it is both kind of the awakening of his life it is his escape from the coal mines that his father ran and made his living on and but then it also is really the key to his undoing it's completely well. the well and and of other people within the absolutely within the novel as well it's quite a complex novel but I, but i could see how those characters were trying i could see them in such a literal sort of way that there they were and there'd be sort of dusty planes and the first electricity wires coming across. It was very vivid to me. But I got quite a shock with, uh, and I guess this is what happens, I, I mean, this is how history plays out, that in the end that power of electricity was used, you know, in as an electric chair. Like it, it, it just, yeah. it, you know, and in some ways then played a very God role or, you know, what we Absolutely. perceive as a God role. and. And it, it was such a shock. I guess that's how it happened. I guess that's how the electrical chair was invented. Absolutely. It's still used in Alabama. Yes. Right. Yes, right. it is. Another it is. fun, yeah. Fun, right. fact. Fun, fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. Fun, but that we see something. the tourist board over there. Yeah, <laughs> We right. see something that is, um, that, that feels like an emblem of progress yeah. and advancement. Yeah. And then we harness it and and use it to commit atrocities. Mm. And so it, it there is this great great in the sense of epic and huge irony and conflict oh, innate it's a, what, what we call here in Australia slap across the face Ooh. actually Ooh. <laughs> yes and that too it'd be lovely to hear you read okay um, I'm going to read just from the beginning of the novel where you you really find out um, Roscoe's my main character and you get his sense of this he's a bit of a sweetheart I, I think that yes I have not found anyone who doesn't doesn't like Roscoe <laughs> The electrical transformers that would one day kill George Haskin sat high on a pole about ten yards off the northeast corner of the farm where Roscoe T. Martin lived with his family. There were three transformers in all, and they stepped down electricity that belonged to Alabama Power, stepped it down to run on new lines along a farm fence, then on through the woods, then straight to the farmhouse and the barn. Roscoe built the transformers himself. He built the lines. He did not have permission. The idea for running in power arrived nearly a year before the power itself. He should have been eating dinner with his family, but he'd hurt his son and made his wife cry, so he was walking the cursed land his wife had forced him to. 
he took the path through the north corn to bring him close to the new power line's long old hyssop road. The corn was to his hips, still young, and the giant grasses brushed his fingers, a sickly feeling that set him shaking out his hands as if to unseat an insect. Of all the crops on his wife's land, corn was Roscoe's least favorite, something obscene in its size and growth, in its stalks and blades and seeds. Everything too big. His wife and son had been reading together on the sofa, an oil lamp on the table behind them lighting the pages. When he'd first courted the boy's mother, Roscoe had read with her, but she shared books with their son now. They hadn't looked up when Roscoe came into the room. What are you reading, he asked. A book, his son mumbled, snuggling closer to his mother. Roscoe peered at the cover. Parnassus on wheels, huh? What's it about? Mm. Annoyance showed on Marie's face. It's about a woman who owns a traveling bookshop. She has a brother she's sick of caring for. Her voice was weary, as though she were talking to a troublesome child, shirking his lessons. The brother refuses to work the farm, she said. She seemed to recognize her overstep before Roscoe reacted, offering him some kind of conciliatory gesture, an uncertain stretch of her hand that he slapped away. Gerald sank deeper into her side. I am not the ugly one here, Roscoe said to her. You knew I wasn't going to become a farmer. <laughs> it's such a terrific book. <laughs> such you. a terrific book. It seems to me that in some ways it is also a book about what happens when the expectations that we place on someone else are so great that we can't meet them. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the expectations that we place on ourselves too. Of course. Um and and those hopes and then what then and then there's the sense of responsibility after things don't go the way they were planned that then who owns that responsibility the who owns that guilt mm. and at what point have you paid at what point can you say your ledger is balanced and and you don't owe and and is there a point it's <laughs> exactly right helen your short stories <laughs> in some ways also, in fact, not even in some ways, do tackle the price that we pay for being who we are. Mm -hmm. If there was a theme, I would say, through all of your short stories, it was the cost of living the way that we want. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? Well, <laughs> that's well. just fine. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, uh, I was thinking, I think, um, that... The stories are about not having it all um, and becoming comfortable and happy with letting that go. Um, so if it's letting, you know, that's the thing. Women think we have to have children, a career, a home life, um, yeah, a dog. We're, we're, actually, <laughs> we're actually exhausted. Um, yeah. and, that is, and, you know, it's exhausting. And mm. it's a lot easier when you take one or two of those away. Um, and there's just nothing wrong with that. Uh, and you can be a feminist and a housewife because, you know, you're choosing what you want. Absolutely. Um, whether that is the day-to-day -day job, whether that is staying home with your kids, whether that is... Um, you know, hitchhiking across Perth. Um, that's <laughs> your business. <laughs> um, yep. So I think the women in the book, what they have in common is nobody wants to leave their, you know, gilded <laughs> cage, whether it's so gilded or not. Um, I think that's something that you see in a lot of 
uh, literature where there's a domestic drama, the woman wants out. Yeah. Um, and these women they don't, don't want out. Whether that means it. they have to kill you to stay in it, <laughs> um, they like where they are. Helen, your book is, is very funny at times. It is the type of book that uh, you can take lines from and use in your own world. I, I enjoyed that very much. Mm-hmm. Would you like to uh, do a little reading from one of your stories? I don't know which one you've chosen, but I'm sure it's uh, nasty and I'm sure it's funny. <laughs> Just like me. <laughs> <laughs> that in no way. Oh, that's, I, that's, that's just fine. Uh, well, I'll, since you know, I am in Australia, um, and you can tell I don't have a Brooklyn accent, I am going to read you a little story, the full story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Southern Lady Code. Fantastic. Oh, good. Southern Lady Code. Is this too dressy? Is Southern Lady Code for I look fabulous and it would be in your best interest to tell me so. I'm not crazy about it. Is Code for I hate that more than sugar-free punch. What do you think about her? Is Code for I don't like her. (laughs) She's always been lovely to me. Is Code for I don't like her either. (laughs) She has a big personality. I mean, she is as loud as a T-Rex. She's the nicest person. I mean, she's as boring as pound cake. She has beautiful skin. I mean, she's as white as a tampon. <laughs> she's old. I means she's as racist as Sandy Duncan in Roots. You are so bad, is Southern Lady Code for. That is the tackiest thing I have ever heard, and I am delighted that you shared it with me. <laughs> bad means let's snitch and bitch she's a character means drunk she has a good time means slut she's sweet means asperger's (laughs) (laughs) she's outdoorsy means lesbian is Southern Lady Code for, I don't agree with you, but am polite enough not to rub your nose in your ignorance. Nice talking with you is Code for, party's over, now scoot. Fantastic, fantastic. I've learned so much. That's true. That's true. I've been saying the wrong thing. That's correct, that's true. Thank you for that lesson before yeah. I do my Southern picture. It's true. <laughs> Would you describe yourself uh, as and I'm going to go around and ask all of you, as a cynical person or an optimistic person? If you had to. I am an optimistic person. And there's an old joke that I'll says go. this. It's Christmas morning and um, the pessimist wakes up, goes down the stairs. What has Santa brought me? Goes into the living room and finds in front of the Christmas tree and all the presents laid out, just the entire room filled with horse crap um, from the <laughs> windows to the ceiling and all he sees is horse crap um, and and optimist wakes up runs down the stairs runs around the corner of the living room sees the top of the christmas tree that's just covered in horse crap and starts diving into it and jumping around and his mother says what is wrong with you and she says with all this horse crap there must be a pony in here somewhere <laughs> so i'm i'm of that variety there must be a pony in here somewhere <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> I don't. I, I can't. I've 
Can we go to the next question. <laughs> How are we supposed to follow that? You've got no jokes for me, Virginia. You've got nothing for no, the they're Australian They're all really public. inappropriate. Yeah. I mean, more so. I would have been cursing, and yeah. I the only jokes I, I know I've learned from my father, and they're both incredibly bad. Like, like, go on. No. <laughs> Optimistic or pessimistic how would you describe yourself depends on the day yeah um i really want to be an optimist and i think at the end of the day <laughs> that's optimistic <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. that's optimistic okay i want yeah. to be an optimist um i think end of the day when i'm going to bed i'm an optimist and throughout the the course so maybe it varies by hour not day yeah. um, <laughs> and i think i we're just inundated with all of the horrible things that are happening in the world and um, and I get really fearful that that the world is just going to hell, um, and that's terrifying to me. And I'm I'm terrified about all of all of the horrors that that humanity has always faced. And and then the optimistic side kind of pops back in and looks for a pony and um, <laughs> and points out the great progress that has been made. So I think that. I think that my optimist ultimately wins out, and and if I if I were all pessimist, then then I think that I I just I wouldn't do anything that I wouldn't write that I wouldn't I think that writing is a form of optimism. So don't they say that writers are depressed? Like comedians are depressed. I hear that all the time. Yeah, I've heard mm-hmm. that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you depressed, Fiona? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad Pass. you asked. <laughs> <laughs> We've got plenty of time. <laughs> Tell me about your childhood. <laughs> no ponies. Zero ponies in my childhood. No, I did. One of my favorite books is Heinrich Boll's The Clown, and he has this amazing line where he talks about, um, you know, it's it's told from the point of view of a depressed clown. And it's, oh it's wonderful. It's That's very so funny. It's like a nightmare. It's, it's, it's actually it's wonderful. I love it. And he talks about at one point that, Clowns and children are the, the people in the world who never have holidays. And mm. what do they're, you mean? they're always clowns and they're always children and they never take oh. a break. Oh. And I think that's true for writers as well. Mm. I think they're like clowns and children, just to bring that all down. Oh, I like. I'm frightened of both. <laughs> when I see a lost child, I think it's an angry ghost. That's my favorite line in your oh. book. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> One word. So, Fiona, optimist, pessimist. <laughs> pessimist when reading the news, optimist when reading literature. Oh, so That's nice. No, I thought they were all pretty good, actually. <laughs> I really thought it was cool. better. Okay. I'm going... <laughs> I'm uh, going to finish with a quote from Helen's book, actually, because it seems apt, given that I have the privilege of working at readings, But on behalf of readings, thank you to all three of you. Thank you for your beautiful words in your novels. Thank you for the hours of entertainment that you gave me and that you will be giving other people. And thank you for agreeing to meet with me today here in Carlton for a readings podcast. We're so touched that you made the time. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. (laughs) Let me finish with a passage from your book. By the book... At full price. So the writer gets her full royalty of 59 cents 
and the independent bookstore gets a cut that will help it stay afloat in a choppy sea of pirated e-books. Carry your paperback proudly like a public radio tote bag. Show it off on the subway and in line for bank tellers. Oh, it sounds so good coming out of your mouth. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.